Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Today we have an incredible story to share with you. Lute Velmans was 17 when the Germans invaded his native Holland in 1940. Almost immediately, he and his family decided to escape to London, which they did on board the Dutch Coast Guard cutter Siemens Hope. Deciding they would be safer in the Far East, the family sailed to the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia, where Lute joined the Dutch Army. In March 1942, the Japanese invaded the archipelago, conquered it in a week, and made prisoners of the local Dutch soldiers. For the next three and a half years, Loot and his fellow POWs were sent to slave labor camps to build a railroad through the dense jungle on the Burmese-Thailand border to invade and conquer India. Some 200,000 POWs and slave laborers died in building this railroad of death. Lute, though suffering from malaria, dysentery, malnutrition, and unspeakable mistreatment, never gave up hope. And he survived. Fifty-seven years later, he returned to revisit the place where he should have died and where he had buried his closest friend. From that emotional visit came the book Long Way Back to the River Kwai, Memories of World War II, from Arcade Publishing. Lute Velman, glad to have you here today. So... I want to I want to start sort of at the beginning and get an idea a feel for how you were raised what family meant to you and then we'll get into how all of this developed. Well, we were a uh, typical Dutch middle-class family only unusual in the sense that my mother was a career woman. She was a buyer for Holland's largest department store chain. And so I was actually didn't see much of my mother because she was working during the day. And in those days, the 30s, that was not a common way in which children were being brought up. Um, went to school, to the middle school, and was always very much interested in what was happening in the world outside of Holland because we were neighboring Germany and we were a very non-observant Jewish family. And of course, what was happening next door with the Kristallnacht in uh, 1938 and the uh, rowdy uh, speeches by Hitler, we were all a little scared and nervous. And I was a kind of precocious little youngster. Every night I spread out the newspaper and I read every word of what was happening. So that is kind of, it was a happy youth with a big shadow over it, which was what was happening next door in Germany. You said you were a little nervous about what was happening in Germany. I think it's important to sort of place, go back in time. Retrospectively, we all know what was happening, but how much did you really know then? Well, we knew a lot because Holland was one of the places where many of the German Jewish refugees, those that were able to get out in the 30s, came to Holland, not necessarily to stay, although quite a number stayed, but they were en route to the United States, to Britain, to Canada, to countries in South America. And so there was a constant flow of German Jews who told us firsthand of what was happening next door. So we, we had a, I would say, an even more intimate feel of what was happening than what you might read in the newspapers, which was, uh, you know, a little bit more abstract. 
So how did this develop? Well, it developed in a sense that I remember very clearly that I was furious when Chamberlain went to Berchtesgaden and struck a deal with Hitler. This was, of course, after the invasion of Czechoslovakia. And I and my friends, youngsters, 16, 17-year-olds, very politically conscious, very, I would say, rebellious about the complacency of our elders, uh, we didn't like that one bit. We were, we were furious. Of course, many people in Western Europe were furious, but the deal was struck, and Hitler was allowed to go on his way further until September 1939, when he invaded Poland and World War II broke out. Were you conscious as a person of Dutch background, or were you also, was that compounded by the fact that you were Jewish? I think that I would phrase it exactly that way. I was first and foremost Dutch, but I was always also Jewish, conscious of being Jewish, and conscious of being singled out. And, you know, even in our small universe, I had two schoolmates who were friends. We learned to play tennis together in a group of six or eight, and here were these two guys who were sympathizers of the Nazis. And we had arguments, but we were still friends. Incidentally, both of them later volunteered for the Dutch volunteer force, that uh, Nazi volunteer force that was sent to fight on the Russian front, and both of them were killed. <laughs> Pick up the story. So Czechoslovakia happened, Poland happened, and then the inevitable. Six months later, or, or whenever it was, the, the September, early September was the declaration of war by the British and the French to Germany. And then the Germans invaded Denmark, then they invaded Norway. And then, of course, the big battle started on May 10th, 1940, when the Germans invaded Holland and Belgium, and thereby bypassing the strong defense lines of the French, the Maginot line on the French-German border. And Holland and Belgium were very quickly occupied, and after that, of course, France was occupied. Now, I was in Holland then, 10th of May. We were all made aware of the war. In fact, the Germans bombed a barracks not far from where we lived, so early in the morning, we were woken up by uh, screeching bombs. And for five days, there was some resistance, some fighting, but the Germans were just too powerful and uh, occupied uh, the Netherlands. I was uh, very struck in reading your book about the kind of early confidence you had that the Germans would be repulsed. Yeah, well, you know... Uh, Hope springs eternal. We were so sure. I think there were two things going on. First of all, you're young, and you are a strong believer in the fact that the good guys will win. And the second element in that was that we thought that, uh, yeah, okay, the Germans are winning now, but the French and the British would The Americans were not yet on our screen. They were, you know, that was too remote, but that the British and French could really be, would be able to 
push the Germans back to their own territory. It was totally unrealistic with hindsight, but that was what 17-year-olds, and not only 17-year-olds, but a lot of people felt. We're talking to Lute Velmans, World War II survivor and author of Long Way Back to the River Kwai, Memories of World War II. It's a great read, and I recommend that everybody get out and get it. So, pick up the story if we can, uh, Lute. What happened next? What happened next was the night of the 14th of May. In the late afternoon, the Dutch radio announced, there was no television, of course, in those days, but we were all listening to the radio. Moment to moment, we were listening to the radio of what developments there were. And we at first had a shock because the Dutch Queen and her cabinet had left the country and gone to England to uh, establish a government in exile. There there was an announcement about the Dutch army having capitulated. And we were, we, our extended family, my mother, sisters, she had two sisters in the neighborhood, and we were all together having an early dinner. And I was 17, and I had a cousin who was 18, and we said, wait a second, we're not taking this. We're going south. We'll take our bicycles. As you know, in Holland, everybody, the, the mode of transportation is bicycling. Uh, we're going south, and we're going to join that small part of the army that the radio had informed mm. us were still continuing to fight. So off we went. We pedaled to the harbor. Now, I lived in a suburb of The Hague, which is called Scheveningen, very difficult to pronounce in English. And we got to the, to the harbor, and there we see hundreds of people, hundreds of people in groups, and uh, they were negotiating. We saw all kinds of currencies that we only imagined, had never really seen, but they looked like dollars or British pounds, and they were people... Uh, Elderly people, middle-aged, very neatly dressed gentlemen were waving them in the face of these fishermen. And what obviously was going on, they were trying to get transportation to go to England. But the fishermen didn't want to buy because they didn't want to leave their families behind. Why should they, for money, go and risk their lives and, and, and leave their families? But something was going on that we thought, well, you know, at least... This looks like a better opportunity to do something if somebody gets out to England than bicycle all the way down to the south of Holland, where there are probably already in many places German troops. So I gave my bicycle to a 12- or 13-year-old boy, and I said to that boy, I scribbled on a piece of paper my home address, which was 15, 20 minutes bicycling away from the harbor, I said, if you give that message to my parents, you can keep the bike. Uh, somewhat unrealistic proposition because you could have taken the bike and, and bicycled home. Meanwhile, I'll get back to that in a second. Meanwhile, we saw in the second harbor, there are two harbors in, in that port, that there were fewer people and there were five young men, a little older than we were, in their 20s. And we, being nosy and 17 and 18-year-old, we wanted to find out what was going on. 
And so one of the five said to us, you know, we're going to steal a boat. Do you guys want to come along? Probably sizing us up and thinking, well, here are two young men who are have some physical force to ability in case we have to fight for it. The boat that they saw was called the Seaman's Hope, the Dutch translation of that, of Seaman's Hope. And it was one of those Coast Guard vessels. I mean, this little boat that goes out in the storms in the North Sea and pick up shipwreck survivors. Normally with a crew of about three or four, picking up four, five, six people. A very proud Dutch institution because there are very many storms in that part of the, uh, of the North Sea. But there was a guard standing over that boat. And uh, so our friends, who turned out to be students from a, the Dutch equivalent to MIT, the Dutch Technical University at Delft, uh, said, we want to take your boat. And he said, over my dead body. And so the seven of us uh, nudged closer. And then at a certain moment, he looked at us and he said, well, okay. And but he said something that we didn't understand. He said, beware of the mines. Mm-hmm. And so we went aboard, and in no time, there were 47 people on board. There were actually about 43, and we had, we, there was one young man who was a soldier who had gone AWOL, because he also wanted to go to England, and he threatened the people that still wanted to jump, and then a taxi stopped, and out come my parents. Mm who had received the message from the boy with the bicycle. And hey, who, and my uncle, and my aunt, and another uncle, and another aunt, they wanted to come aboard. And, you know, the young students who were in charge, who had taken charge, who were natural-born leaders, they said, no more, no more. And I, I, I yelled, and my cousin Dick yelled, but those are our parents, those are our parents. So he said, okay, 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 okay. So then with them, there were 47 people aboard. And so we left. And this was a few hours before the German army entered The Hague. So we were in that gap of time in between the Dutch official capitulation and the German army actually reaching our, our hometown. Okay, you're on the boat. Boat doesn't start, as I remember it. Boat doesn't start. Boat gets to the end of a pier, the two long piers, and so again, somebody jumps off because we have to get what they call the engineer, we called it in Dutch the motorman, and somebody on a bicycle found the house of the motorman. The motorman came, got the boat working, jumped off again. He was offered all kinds of money to accompany us. He didn't want to take it, so off we went. We had one tremendous advantage. It was an absolutely beautiful night. There was no storm. There was, there was, it was just a calm sea, clear sky. And so we sailed. We went. We thought we were going due west. Somewhere west of Holland is England. About 23 hours later, we see a big vessel. Turns out to be a British destroyer. Could have been a German warship. 
There were no German warships there, but, you know, what did we know? Anyway, we get on board, and we are being asked by the captain to come to the bridge. And he said, where are you coming from? And we told him where we had left. And he said, well, you know, you're almost at the beginning of the Straits of Dover. And if you had sailed on, if it had been a little foggy, you could have ended up in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere. He said, but uh, more pertinently, he said, the way that you, that you crossed, you went over minefields, but you took this little vessel, so you didn't have enough depth to detonate the mines. So... Another lucky break. We are talking to Lute Velmans, long way back to the River Kwai, memories of World War II. Lute, now you get to England. What happened was there was a small community of Dutch refugees, and there was a Dutch government who didn't have much to do because they only had to worry about what was happening back in Holland, over which they had absolutely no control. There was no underground or anything yet. Now, this is all very early days. This Mm. is 1940, a month, two months after the war started. So the government said, well, they said to me, and there was one member of the cabinet who who had been a neighbor, he said, why don't you go to the Dutch East Indies, Indonesia? And he said to my parents, you can finish your high school there, and then you can come back, and you can join the army, because now you're too young. And then he said to my parents, and uh, you know, and you can go there, and you find a job there. So then we went to Indonesia, and that's where she became industrious, and she ran a uh, small department store. So how did you actually go? I mean, what was the mode of transportation? Oh, the mode of transportation was a troop ship. The... British were preparing for the possibility or the likelihood that there would also be war in the Far East. Mm-hmm. So they were strengthening their army and the strongest point of defense or the central point of defense of the British was Singapore. So there were troops, young recruits, young volunteers, 19, 20-year-old, as you now see them go to Iraq, kids with the relatively little training, in contrast to maybe here, where they may have had a lot more training, but who were shipped out, and they were on big troop ships. And we went on one of those troop ships. Now, the Mediterranean, of course, was closed. Italy was also in the war. And so you couldn't go through the Suez Canal, Mediterranean Suez Canal. So we went all the way around the southern part of South Africa and actually stopped off in Cape Town and in Durban on the uh, east coast of South Africa and then went across and finally transshipped in Singapore and took a steamer from there to Jakarta. And that's where we arrived and that's when I went to school. Now your mother gets work there and she gets promoted rapidly as I remember it because she was what there was. Uh, right. Her so, boss was uh, was in Holland on leave. Right. Yeah. Okay. I want to take a moment to just ask you a question, Lute Velmans, that has always occurred to me. And we, we've heard a lot of stories about people who ran away from Germany and ran to one place or another that were controlled by the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And there's always been this mythology, maybe, maybe it's true, that Jewish people received somewhat better treatment from the Japanese than they would have from the Germans. 
because the Japanese were not as committed to this concept of extermination. And that, in fact, some who came that way and ended up in the United States were felt that they were sort of benignly protected by the Japanese. I know this may be a little off subject, but could I just ask you whether that's true or not in your mind? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true, but it's not because of any particular interest in the subject on the part of the Japanese. The Japanese were just totally ignorant or allergic to making distinctions between their Western enemies, and they didn't single out, they didn't know what a Jew was, so it never occurred to them to even ask the question. There are apparently, that gets off the subject, one or two places where that in Shanghai where that where there was a certain evolution there, but certainly in the experience, my personal experience, was that the Japanese never asked questions about religion. Okay, so let's move on. You now are there, Jakarta. What happens? Well, I go to school, finish school, join the army, the Dutch army. It's December 1941. Pearl Harbor happens. And, of course, everything in this country is focused on Pearl Harbor. But something as important as Pearl Harbor happened, which was the invasion of Thailand, Malaysia, which was then called Malaya, and a very rapid conquest of the Japanese of the very large chunk of territory of Southeast Asia. So in March, three months after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese invaded and very rapidly conquered Indonesia. And here I was, again, in a situation which I didn't like. Uh, so I tried to do the same thing that I did in Holland. I tried to get out the evening of the capitulation. I didn't make it because I was held up by a very uh, officious captain or whatever he was and who didn't let me pass. A friend of mine and I were trying to get to a port on the south coast of the Isle of Java in order to maybe find a ship that would go to Australia or would go to Sri Lanka. We never made it. We were sent back. And later I learned that quite a few ships left. I don't know the number, but four, six, or eight. Every single one of them was torpedoed by the Japanese, wow. and there were no survivors. Wow. So how did it come to pass that you got taken prisoner? I was taken prisoner because the whole army capitulated. We didn't fire a shot. Now, there were some Dutch troops who were engaged in activity, in defense, but very few. There was a kind of near panic in terms of fear of the Japanese. For a very long time, until the outbreak of war, there was really a kind of racial slur on both sides. Your older listeners may remember that. We thought of the Japanese as monkeys, and uh, the Japanese thought of us as unworthy cowards. And uh, we had very strong feelings on both sides. So when the Japanese army invaded, after everything that Japan had already accomplished, which was destroyed the American, the U.S. fleet, taken Malaysia in very little time, and then, without much fighting, conquered Fortress Singapore. We, who were to the south of there, when I say we, our officers were 
scared out of their skins. There was a mythology now about the Japanese. So as a matter of fact, the invading forces of the Japanese in numbers were much smaller than the Dutch army was. But the Dutch army had never really been in a war, and these Japanese were very good fighters. They had, uh, some of them had, been, had come from China, had been engaged in warfare for many years, and they were tough, and we were scared, and we, we, we capitulated. They had a reputation for meanness, to put it mildly. That too, that mm-hmm. too. Okay, pick up the story, Lute Velmans. You can all read it if you're missing any part of this in Long Way Back to the River Kwai, Memories of World War II by Lute Velmans, a wonderful book. Tell me what happens. You're in the army, you're conscripted, the army capitulates. What, what becomes of you? Well, the beginning was not too bad because the Japanese did not treat us badly. Uh, they left us more or less alone. But that, that didn't last very long. And those fighting troops were destined for other destinations. They were going to New Guinea, Arian, or to the Solomon Islands, or wherever the next attack was. Uh, and, and, you know, they were also preparing eventually maybe to even invade Australia. Uh, so they were replaced by professional, and professional between quotes, prison guardians. I mean, this was another type of Japanese military a much less successful type. They didn't make it. They were not the cream of the crop. And those became our wardens. And they were mean and cruel, and they began to turn on the screws. And we had to salute every Japanese soldier. And a roll call, we had to all look to the north and pay our respects to his imperial majesty, uh, Hirohito. And if you uh, didn't? If you didn't, you got, you got beaten. You use the word beaten a lot in the book. What did beaten mean? Beaten means, a mild form of being beaten means that you get slapped in the face. A nastier form of beating means that you get a rifle in your back. And the cruelest form is if they find that you've done something that you shouldn't have done. The beating is followed by having prisoners stand in the sun for 12 hours, lifting something up in the air or putting them in a cage, in a very small cage. All these things happen in all of the camps. Hmm. There was a reason for that. But yeah, go ahead. The reason for that was that the Japanese, their culture did not allow them to respect anybody who puts down his arms. Mm-hmm. They, uh, you, may, you may recall that we never took any Japanese prisoners, or hardly any. Those that, that we took were people who were unconscious or who were, who were and, and even then they sometimes try to commit suicide. And when towards the end of the war we invaded Okinawa, there were thousands of Japanese civilians, women and children, who jumped off the cliff rather than become prisoners or rather than be occupied. So during the war, the Japanese code of honor did not allow a Japanese to be taken prisoner. In contrast to any other nation, the Chinese didn't have that kind of philosophy. The Germans didn't. 
We certainly didn't. And so when we capitulated, we were the lowest of lowest scum. We didn't deserve any respect, and we could be treated the way that you treat your dog if you don't treat your dog well. It's Lute Vellman, long way back to the River Kwai, memories of World War II. So now you're in prison. Now they're going to start moving people, right? Right. Where do they move you? They moved us to Singapore, and uh, that means a ship. And those were old freighters, and we were put in a hold, and we were allowed uh, half an hour, twice a day, I think, on deck. And it was a terrible trip with very little food. And in the last few months, before we departed Java, we were already underfed. Our, our own stores had been eaten up. And the Japanese didn't supply us with much to eat. So we were in somewhat weakened, but still pretty good condition. I mean, if you're 17 or 18, 19, 20-year-old, there's a lot that you can take. So we were taken to Singapore, and uh, we were in jails and other encampments there. And the reason for that was that the Japanese, I think, wanted to exercise central control rather than have all these different camps scattered over the various islands of Indonesia, plus all the tens of thousands or more than 10,000 British and Australians that had capitulated in Singapore itself. And then they conceived of the idea of making some practical use of the prisoner. The practical use was to use the prisoner as slave labor. What do they want to do? Well, they, there, was a, there was a project of the Japanese. The Japanese had conquered Thailand. They had conquered Malaya. They were allowed by the French to be in Indochina. And so they wanted to push on. And so a very large Japanese army went into Burma. And if you recall your geography, Burma is a little to the left of all these other countries. And bordering Burma is India. And the Japanese were going to conquer the world. They were going to meet up with the Germans somewhere. So there was a plan, and strategies were devised, to invade India. So they had an army of, I forgot the number, but at least 250,000, maybe more, up to a half a million people, soldiers. And those soldiers, those troops had to be supplied. Now, they could easily be supplied because the Japanese were the masters of the sea. They had destroyed or nearly destroyed the U.S. fleet. They had sunk two big British uh, battleships. The British fleet was therefore no longer effective. And so they could supply from Japan and from the other territories, they could supply their troops in Burma who were preparing themselves to invade India by ship, by going around Singapore up that other coast towards Rangoon, which was the capital of Burma, which they also had conquered. Then something happened, which was Admiral Nimitz and the Battle of Midway. And it was the first major victory of the Allies particularly the Americans. And the Japanese Navy command realized that they could no longer guarantee the safety of all those supply ships. And so the Japanese had a, an alternative plan, which was to build a railroad 
through the jungle, going from Thailand deep into Burma. And plans for that railroad had existed for many, many years. But nobody had ever taken that seriously because it was too tough a job. So the Japanese said, well, tough a job, yes, it is, and we don't have much equipment. But hey, we got all those prisoners. We can use them. And also, we got a lot of native workers, people who in Malaysia, who uh, couldn't be used, who had been working as laborers. And we'll take them. So pretty quickly, a very large group of human labor became available, or the Japanese. Okay, now putting a face on this, that was you. Right. And you had a lot of friends. And part of the poignancy of the book is how you lost some of those friends. Mm -hmm. And some of the guys who just happened to be big in stature came in for the worst beatings and the worst, worst treatment, and you still were in pretty good shape. But it really got to be terrible. Yeah, yeah, it got to be terrible because the Japanese did not accept the fact that uh, somebody could be sick. That was, there was this part of the philosophy in the army. Now, this is all army. It is not an indictment of Japanese culture in general, but it is. it was certainly the regime and the generals who ruled the country who proclaimed that no Japanese soldier was allowed to fall ill. No Japanese soldier were allowed to fall ill. So if the Japanese themselves were not allowed to, those scumbags of prisoners certainly had no right to be absent from working. So here we were, we're now going ahead. We're on the railroad, we're building, and my friends and I, we're sick. We have malaria. We have all kinds of illnesses. And every day we're being driven out of our very miserable quarters. We have very little food. And we have no food. And so... Got malaria, uh, got dysentery, you got you name it. And the Japanese have a quota. The Japanese engineers say, here there are 200 in this barrack. We think that 170 of the 200 have to go and, and work. And when did our own medical doctors say, hey, we, ha- we ain't got 170, we only got 145, they said, well, they marched through and they said, but you're not really sick, get out. What kind of stuff were you doing? You were picking up rocks? Uh... We were picking up rocks. We were picking up rocks. We were shoveling. We were building embankments. I was picking up stones with one of my f- friends. And we each had to carry a bag on a pole. And the stones were the result of the blasting that the Japanese had performed of the rocks. And then we carried that up a hill, you know, and that's the way rail beds were were being made. And you, of course, were expendable. So we were expendable. They didn't care how many many died. You made a comment that I want to go back to, and I'm afraid of forgetting about it later on, because at the very end of the book, when you go back, you see some Japanese tourists who basically shove you and your wonderful wife, Edith, out of the way. Mm -hmm. You were careful to make a distinction in your earlier moment about the difference between Japanese soldiers and other Japanese. But when I read that little postscript, I wasn't so sure that that's what you were feeling. Well, you know, it's very difficult 
to remain very objective about the people that have mistreated you. I think I've mellowed a lot, but I've had a problem, which I describe at at the end of the book, that uh, having been in Japan uh, on uh, business and and negotiations, that I have yet to meet the first Japanese of my own generation who will, one, admit that the Japanese bear some responsibility for the war, and two, that they have ever mistreated anybody. And there is just, I mean, the contrast between the Japanese and the and the Germans is enormous. And books have been written about that, a very good book by Ian Boruna recently. The Japanese do not want to admit to the fact that they mistreated, and it's still an issue that handicaps relationships between the Japanese and the Koreans and between the Japanese and the Chinese, whereas the Germans have made all kinds of reparation payments and have done all kinds of things to try to come to terms with their uh, with their conduct. So I sense that in Japanese, and I sense that. I, I don't sense that in the younger ones, but I sense that on that particular day on that bridge, after 57 years, that these were the same Japanese who, you know, Seeing us didn't mean anything did and they were walking they were working through us. We were a red light, but they walked right through the red light. Lute Vellman's long way back to the River Kwai memories of World War II. We're not done by any means uh, in terms of what you were experiencing when you were down there. You had friends they were they were dropping, they were dying. How did it feel to have friends with names and faces who died? Well, you begin to let that sink in. But there is something that is very difficult to explain with hindsight. You have one friend. Usually, survival means that you must have one or two others. You cannot survive all by yourself. There is, there is somebody that you relate to, that you can talk to, and that you can share things with. If you find an edible plant or get a, an extra piece of rice or, or you feel that he needs a little bit more of the soup, the watery soup, that is being offset by this total concentration on yourself because it is a question of your survival, your own survival. And you turn into yourself. So when that friend dies... You, everyone in the camp has had that. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but there have been multiple dep- states of depression or periods of depression. But you had one particular friend? Uh, I had one friend, this, uh, George, in- and I, I buried him. I mean, I, uh, I buried him. Where did he die? He died in the camp that I was in, in Spring Camp. It was called Spring Camp. And that's the place we went back to, Edith and I, and, and tried to find. And that's where the book opens up, doesn't right, it? Right, yeah. So at this age, how old are you now, Luton? I'm 80. Can you remember the day he died? No. No, I think there is a kind of blurring of so many deaths. I can remember putting him in a burlap bag like I did others because I was a totally unqualified medical orderly for a short period. Yes. And uh, so I buried people. And I remember him 
But I remember just as vividly the guy that I don't know and can't prove the face to and who was too heavy for me, and I dropped the body in a, in a burlap bag. And that's been, a, that's been a, a memory over the years that has recurred time and again of not having been able to lift that guy and let that bag drop. At one point, as you just indicated, you become a medical orderly. Mm. How did that happen? Well, on the railway, back to that old term, beatings, if we weren't working fast enough, the Japanese had a word for setting the pace, which they called speedo. And everything had to be done speedo, speedo, speedo. So not only were you, in your weakened condition, demanded to work and to do the near impossible, but you had to do it at a, at a rapid pace. And if you didn't do it, somebody was going to hit you. It was also going to hit you. So one day, I wasn't quick enough for a, one of those guards who had his eye on me. He had not, for days he had watched me and he had yelled to me personally, stood in front of me, speedo. And whatever I did, I don't think I did it purposely. Mm -hmm. I was probably too scared to do it purposely. He, uh, that day, had a hammer, not as they often had bamboo sticks. And he put that in the small of my back, and it knocked me out. So that was, again, one of those lucky escapes, mm -hmm. because it took me off the railway. So I was put in the sick bay, and there was a very kind doctor who said to me... Uh, the Dutch doctor? A Dutch doctor who said to me, uh, after three or four days, I'm not sending you back. I want you to be here and work as my orderly. I said, why? He said, because the orderly deed that I had died yesterday. Have you met that doctor since the war? No. Do you ever think about going back and killing the son of a bitch who did that to you? No. Never no, occurred to you? Well, you know, it, it, again, it's a funny thing about hatred. I think there was a total, absolute, complete sense among all the prisoners of all the nationalities, and I include those, quite a few whom I've met who were in the Philippines, in Bataan, Corregidor, genuine sense of hatred, total furious feelings about the Japanese that lasted for a very long time. And that still lasts among some of the survivors. Now, I belong to a group that there were, there were many who said after the war, I want to forget about the whole thing. And in forgetting, I think you dilute your sense of, of, of hatred. Do you remember the day the war ended or the, the day yeah. that you knew you were going home or that it was over? I very clearly remember the day of the announcement of the end of the war. You know, August 1945, 15th of August 1945. I was in Changi because my particular group had been brought back by the Japanese from the railway back to Singapore, which was rather exceptional, but we, we were. So we, I was liberated there. And I remember that night that we heard the news that Japanese, the, the, emp the emperor has declared or... We first heard the news about the atomic bomb. We didn't know what the hell that meant, like nobody. I mean, there was an enormous explosion in Japan somewhere which made the Japanese surrender. 
So, again, we didn't know the exact details. But when you found out the exact details, considering what they had done to you, what was your conclusion? Oh, I have always felt that I know there is a lot of discussion about the use of the atomic bomb, and it's still going on in the museum in Washington. You know, what, what, what to do with the, with the Erna Gray, the, 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 the plane, and how to describe it. I can only have one uh, feeling about it, because the Japanese, when they were on the defensive, when they were about to lose the war, the Japanese military command gave an order that on the day of Allied invasions anywhere where prisoners were, were being held, prisoners should be killed. And where I was in Singapore, which was part of the British Southeast Asia Command, a plan had been de developed by Admiral Mountbatten, who was the commander-in-chief, that the invasion of Malaysia would take place. I forgot the exact date, but around the end of the first week or of September. In other words, three weeks after the end of the war. So the atomic bomb was dropped, and here I am talking to you. If no atomic bomb had been dropped, and if there had been the traditional kind of air bombardment, naval bombardment, and invasion by British and Australian troops of Singapore or Malaysia, north of there, I wouldn't be here to tell the story. So I felt that under the circumstances, there was really no choice. I believe in the theory that in order to save millions of lives, before we, we now we as Americans, were going to invade the Japanese islands and have kamikaze and other hundreds of thousands of suicide fighters against us with very heavy losses on our side. I don't think Truman could have made another choice. There were no alternatives. When you heard the news in Singapore, can you put a face on it and tell us what Lute Velmans was thinking? I think what I was thinking was, it's hard to exactly remember it, but what I was thinking of, and again, that was collective. It's over. Boy, it's over. We're free. We're going home. You went home and you saw your mother? No, no. I mean, my, my, my parents had also gone to Indonesia. Where they were in camps, civilian camps. But there was the concept of going, going home, going somewhere. And home was certainly not Indonesia's. Home was Holland, where they were. So we, we didn't know. We didn't know. But we were elated. We were beside ourselves. We've survived this. And we didn't use that term either. I think we all used the term... It's over. We're free. And now we're going to kill the son of a, the sons of etc. <laughs> well, of course we didn't. In your post-career, you became an incredibly successful man. And you rose to the top of the top PR firm in the world, Hill & Knowlton. How much of what happened to you can be ascribed, in terms of your achievements later on, to what you went through? I think one thing that I'm very, very conscious of and that is that I have a habit, uh, I have a, not a habit, it's the wrong word. I have a possibility of seeing things in a perspective of nothing can be as difficult, nothing can be as 
tough as what I've lived through and what I have survived. Some of my colleagues once described me to a paper as that I was a little bit unflappable. It wasn't that I didn't have any emotions, but if they came with enormous problems that a client had or that they had, and in my own personal life, I always thought, hey, can't be as bad as what it was. How come you made it? Luck. In the book, you know, everything is a question of luck. I was lucky that that motor got started, finally. I was lucky that when we boarded that destroyer, we were in the sights of a German submarine that had run out of torpedoes. Found that later in German archives. It was published in Holland about this miraculous survival. I was, we didn't talk about it, there was this German cruiser, the Graf Spee, that sank a lot of... We picked up survivors of the Graf Spee on our way from England to Singapore on the West Coast. We could have been the ship that was torpedoed. We were, we were a big passenger. I survived by not getting on a ship from the south coast of Java. I survived the war. I don't know why I survived. There was my particular group, H-Force, which it was called, was basically British, Dutch, and some Australians, and a few Americans. There is altogether a 40% survival rate. And so uh, that's luck. You can't call that anything but luck. So I'm still very thankful that I had so much luck in my life. We're out of time. I want to thank my guest today, Lute Velmans, World War II survivor and author of Long Way Back to the River Kwai, Memories of World War II, from Arcade Publishing. Lute, thanks for taking the time to share your story with us today. I'm Alan Shartok. Thank you.